Well, good morning again. How are you? How's everyone doing? We awake? Yeah? Good. Good deal. We're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 is where we've been camping out for, for a little bit. We've been uh, discovering eight spiritual blessings that all believers have in Christ, which are listed in chapter 1, verse 3 to 13, 14, somewhere in there. And uh, so far, we've looked at uh, election, and we've looked at adoption. Those are two of the spiritual blessings that we've examined so far, the first ones that are listed. And uh, we're going to look at the third one, which is listed in verse 6. So if you'd like to, you can take your Bibles right over and turn right over to Ephesians 1, Chapter 1, verse 6, that's where we're going to camp out for the morning. That's where we're going to spend our time. And uh, one of the amazing things about that particular verse is it looks like a very simple, uh, you know, you could just easily gloss or glance at it and just kind of be done with it and kind of move on. And, uh, but it is uh, far more profound and wide and deep. Uh, it's far deeper than, than what I anticipated. And so, you know, whenever I start writing a sermon for, you know, the Sunday that's coming, and, and I write my sermons on Thursdays and Fridays because I'm bivocational and I have work and all that, but I always get into it a couple hours, then I start to, get, I start to panic, and I start to worry that I'm not going to have enough material to actually uh, preach an entire sermon. You know, I usually need six or seven pages, and that's about an hour. And, of course, if you've been here for any length of time, I've never had a problem with uh, having enough material for that. But then I find myself at the end of the process, as I'm editing, cutting out major sections to shorten it up because I realize I'm at nine pages or something like that. And it's just this crazy process that I enter in every week. And so this is one of those tricky verses that appears to be very simple but is quite profound. And I think, obviously, much more has been said uh, by others, greater men than, than I could ever be uh, on this particular verse. But anyways, that's where we're going to be, Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. I'd like to commit our time uh, to the Lord through prayer one more time here, and then we'll get to work. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Uh, this verse is deep and wide and complex um, and Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be in this place, be in us, your followers, and that he would make this truth known to us, that he would apply this truth to our hearts, that we would be changed by it, changed by the word of God, which is living and active, Hebrews 4, and that we would leave this place as different people, uh, people that, that have been touched by your truth and love and grace and mercy, and people who want to respond to your truth, to its power in love and gratitude to you, and praise and service. And so, have your way here today, Holy Spirit. Jesus, lead us in this time. Father, be glorified. And we pray this in the name of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Spiritual blessing number three, right? First one was election, second one was adoption, number three, and we see it right there in verse six. It's blessed or blessed, either way, I'm probably going to be going back and forth since every time I look at it, I'm compelled to say it differently, but we'll say blessed right here in the beloved. That is the third blessing, to be blessed in the beloved. And let's read the verse real quick. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, before unpacking what it means to be blessed in the beloved, I'd like to deal with the first half of the verse, 6a. Um, it's there. We don't want to skip that part just to get to what we would think is the good stuff. Uh, there's a reason why 6a is there. Paul has already unfolded for us the two chief spiritual blessings, right? Election and adoption. God elected us unto salvation and He predestined us unto adoption through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has made two additional things in that whole area prior to 6 lucidly clear, particularly in verse 4 and 5. 
One, God did these things for us before the foundation of the world, which means that it had nothing to do with the Ephesians, nothing to do with us. This was God's selecting, God's choosing, God's action, right? Leaving us with nothing to boast about. We can't boast about what we did for ourselves or how we responded in faith or how we exercised faith. It's all God. It's His deal. He's made that clear. We're elected and it's all God. And secondly, uh, God did these things for us in accordance with the purpose of His will. It says there, and I think five, uh, which also means that we had, what, nothing to do with it. It wasn't according to our choice or selecting Him or any of that stuff. It wasn't according to Him looking out over the corridors of time and seeing us do stuff. It was all according to the purpose of His will. He's got all that stuff worked out. He had it worked out in eternity past. He's unfolding it for us today. But the bottom line is He inserts those two clauses there to help us know that it wasn't us, that it was all God, right? Right? That is a primary thing there. And then we get to 6a, right? Here's what God has done. Elected, adopted, it's all him. It's not you. We get to verse 6a, and what happens? Paul shows the Ephesians what to praise, right? What to praise. Here's what's been done for you. Here's what you praise, right? What? Here's what we would think typically. Praise yourselves. Praise your faith. Praise your good deeds. Praise your religion, you know, praise your choice and your free will. No, 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 no. What does he write in 6a to the praise of his glorious grace? Right there. When we ponder and consider what God has done for us in election and adoption, we are to praise his glorious grace. That is the rightful response. That is how we respond to what he has done. God's glorious grace was foundational to the Ephesians, to our election and adoption, and the spiritual blessings that are all listed in this text. Therefore, all the praise of the Ephesians, as Paul is writing to, and ours, all of our praise should be directed to God's grace or to God for His grace, if you will. That's what he's saying all the way up to 6a. Now, as Christians... Do we know what the chief purpose of creation is? As Christians, do we know what the chief purpose of Scripture or of the Bible is? As Christians, do we know what the chief, chief purpose of the church is? As Christians, do we know, do we understand what the chief purpose of salvation is? Do we understand as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers, what the chief purposes of those four primary foundational things is. Do we know what it is? The chief purpose of them all is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. And so, and why am I saying this? Because I, I don't want us to think that it's something else, especially when we think about election and adoption. The purpose of those doctrines, those particular things, those acts of God is to produce praise and glorification of God. And you must know and you must understand that God is zealous for his own glory. He is zealous for his own glory. In fact, it says in scripture, he will share it with no one else. He is zealous for his own glory. And, and I always like to say that when you're the creator of all things, when you thought it all up and put it all together and you're working in it and bringing all things to fruition and, and, and doing all of this and you've orchestrated all events and you've set it all up, and I know some of that stuff's bad and terrible, but God is going to use it for good. When you've done all of that, you are the rightful owner or recipient of all praise and glorification. You are. When you do all that stuff, I mean, you think about it as a guy, you know, just as a dad, a husband, as a single guy or whatever, you go to work, you work hard, you do all of that, you can kind of do with your money what you want. It's kind of up to you what you do with it. Nobody, except for the federal government, will be telling you what to do with it. You have a sense of ownership over that money, over your household, over your property in these things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, it's the same with God. If he owns every household, if he owns the th you know, uh, uh, all the cattle on a thousand hills, blah, 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 all of this, if it's all his, then he is the rightful heir and owner of all glory, all praise, it all belongs to him. Now, it makes sense that we live in a world that doesn't really do that. We have people that are lost and that are sinners and, 
And, and now we can kind of understand why God is a wrathful God, because He is due the praise and glorification, and He doesn't receive it by the high majority. But we must understand that He is worthy of all the praise. He's deserving of it. God has bestowed His grace upon fallen creatures like me, like you, so that we can and will glorify and praise Him. You know, the ultimate purpose of our salvation isn't heaven, as we often say and teach children. Well, one day, little Jimmy, you're going to be where there's golden streets and it's wonderful. And yeah, that's all true and that's all fine and dandy. That's all spectacular. But do we understand the overarching, the meta narrative of all scripture and salvation? And that's the glory of God. God saves people, they become glorifiers of Him. The end purpose and goal of salvation is glory to God. When we are finally made like Christ, like without the sin nature and all these things, and who glorifies God like the, the Son? Wow, really. We'll be made like Him that we can glorify the Father as the Son glorifies Him. So the chief purpose to those things, it's all to the glory of God. And He gives us grace. He bestows grace upon fallen creatures, which is a mystery. He does it so that they can and will glorify Him. And the fact is, is that Ephesians 1, 6a, or yeah, Ephesians 1, 6a, that's what I meant to write there, it makes this incredibly clear. It makes it lucidly clear, right? Because you have this work of God in the previous verses, and then we get to this climactic thing of to the praise of His glorious grace. It makes it so clear. The end goal is glory to God. The primary purpose for our election, adoption, and spiritual blessings is praise to God. They lead us to the praise of His glorious grace. That is what Paul is saying. That's what he's, he's saying emphatically. That's the truth here. Now, let's begin to look at 6b. And this is where it, it begins to open up and get really, really exhilarating. It says, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. What does blessed us in the Beloved mean? What is He saying there? Well, I'll attempt to break it down for you. I'll attempt to divide it. Let's begin with the word blessed, okay, or blessed. Some translations do not use uh, the term or phrase blessed. They use accepted. You may, have, you may be sitting there and you might have a King James uh, because that's how you roll and that's a good way to roll. It's a you know, word for word literal translation so it's, it's, it's very good. Um, but it says, I believe it uses the phrase accepted. Yeah, in fact, the King James, I even wrote it in my notes, it puts it like this, wherein he hath, you got all the e's and thou's and all that, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That's the way that the King James translation uh, puts it. Now, this particular rendering conjures all sorts of ideas and thoughts. It does. In, in fact, it stimulates within me more thoughts. It, it provokes more thoughts in, in the entertaining of ideas than the ESV translation, which I think is pretty docile, which is pretty mellow, blessed in the beloved. Well, I like the idea of accepted. I, I think even that that's closer to the original meaning here. But it does cause more thoughts and ideas, and so I'm going to run with that just for a little bit here. It, you know, obviously it points to our, uh, points to our acceptance and how it was achieved. Uh, the King James Version does that really well. He has adopted us in the beloved, if you will. Unrighteous sinners like us have been made acceptable to God because we have been placed in the righteous one, the beloved who is Jesus Christ. So the King James Version sorts of, sort of points to that primary point there. That's how we've been made acceptable, by being put in Christ, who is ultimately accepted, never rejected. So that's an interesting way to look at it. Our acceptance, you must know this, our acceptance uh, of God, God accepts us, right? We've been put in Christ, He accepts us. It is completely certain it is completely sure uh, because it is mirrored after the Father's acceptance of the Son. 
It's modeled after the relationship that they share and have always had. Now, one might try to argue that God's acceptance of us is mutable or changing, uh, that it is susceptible to conditions and our behavior in these sorts of things. People try to argue that all the time. They try to say that you could lose your salvation, you could lose God's favor, you can lose these sorts of things. Um, when we talk about being fully accepted by God, some will argue that, well, that might be true in some sense, but you can also lose that acceptance from Him and be you know, rejected in what these, these things. And, and they basically base that on the Calvary narrative. They would base that idea on the forsaking of Christ at Calvary. You remember the story there when Jesus is dying on the cross and, and he you know, kind of looks to heaven and says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so they would say that, well, look at this, look at this point in history where the father turned his face away and, and you know, rejected the son in a, in a nanosecond. He didn't accept him. They would take that and try to argue that because that happened with Jesus, that can happen with us, that we can lose our acceptance. What they fail to understand about that particular text is that Jesus was quoting the first few verses or few, uh, first verse of Psalm 22, and that the common Jewish way of designating an entire psalm was to refer to its opening lines. You know, a, back in those days, a Jewish rabbi could just simply recite the first line in a psalm intending to point to the entire psalm without ever reading or reciting from memory the rest of the psalm. And so that is what Jesus was doing. And we must think that this is how they did it back then because the verses weren't numbered back then. They were paragraphs. Uh, it's the way it was written. It was more like narrative, if you will. Uh, so they weren't numbered back then. Now, if you look at Psalm 22, okay, like at the beginning, again, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you look a little further down in verse 24, it says, he, speaking of God, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, speaking of Christ, but when he cried to him, he heard. So what you see at the beginning of the psalm is an apparent forsaking. What you see down toward the end of the psalm is he wasn't forsaken. So which is it, Jesus? Did God turn his face away from you? Or is that an impossibility? Did he not do that? The psalm seems to say both things, right? It's a very, very interesting uh, little mix that happens there. I, I'm not sure if the father actually forsook the son in that moment because of the complexity of Psalm 22. I, I'm not going to say he did for sure, and I'm not going to say he didn't. The other night when we were in the elders meeting, I was saying he didn't forsake him. And Paul reminded me of a few other passages, and I said maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, it's a perplexing, complex passage. If there was a forsaking, a breach of acceptance, a breach of fellowship, or anything like that there, it had to be between the Father and the man Christ. It had to be with the humanity of Christ because it's the human aspect. You know, it's not even an aspect. He's fully man, fully God. Try to figure that one out. But it's the man, Christ Jesus, that took the sin, all our sin upon him. Not the deity. The deity can't take the sin upon itself. The deity doesn't have anything to do with sin. It, it can't touch it. It can't look upon it or anything. And so the human aspect or the humanity of Jesus, the incarnate part, the flesh is what would have absorbed our sin. And maybe that's how God responded to the human aspect, if you will. I don't know. It seems that if there was a forsaking, that's how it would have to go down. Maybe that's the key. What I do know is that Matthew 26, 46, that's where we see it, is mysterious and somewhat unclear. So what's my point? Am I spinning my wheels? No. What I'm telling you is that is not a good verse to base we can lose our acceptance on. It's absolutely preposterous that anyone would do that. And know this, if there was a literal forsaking, it wasn't between God and God. And our acceptance is based on that eternal divine relationship, that Trinitarian relationship. So if somebody says you can lose your salvation, if somebody says you can lose these things with God, if somebody says you can lose acceptance, favor any of these things, 
help them to understand that it's as sure as the relationship is between the Father and the Son, which is eternal, forever, perfect fellowship, no frustration, no sin, none of the stuff that we're having to deal with on this side of glory. Big point, we can rest assured that our acceptance is secure and unaffected by what took place at Golgotha. In fact, here's the way we should look at what took place at Calvary at Golgotha, right? The place of the skull where he was crucified. That is the place where our acceptance was made sure. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are acceptable. And being placed in Christ makes us accepted. So what took place at Golgotha doesn't eliminate our acceptance. It fortifies it. It makes it a possibility. So look at it that way. That's the right way to look at it. What's my major point? You're accepted if you're in Christ. You can't lose that under any circumstances. Nothing can take that away from you. It's as sure as the Trinitarian relationship is. Since God has accepted us, and here's, here, these are like some of the beautiful benefits of acceptance, okay? Being accepted by God means these things and, and so much more. Since God has accepted us, we don't have to pursue acceptance through lesser means like the world does. As believers, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to pursue acceptance in this world as the world does. We don't have to try to find it in ways that don't pay big dividends, in ways and from sources that don't last, that are mutable, that are changing. We don't have to do that. We do not have to do that. We don't have to, as, as, as Christians, as believers, we don't have to pursue acceptance through religion. We don't have to do that. We don't have to come to church and try to play some kind of game or try to, you know, try to, try to do these things and try to uphold some sort of structure and religion and play this game of coming and doing these things. And, 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 and all the while, we're not actually coming out of hearts of worship or any of this, but we're just coming to make those appearances and so that we can gain acceptance through the brethren. Or maybe God, maybe we think that God won't accept us if we don't show up to church regularly. Your elders will wrestle with that, but your God doesn't. <laughs> your God doesn't. I mean, believe me, He wants you to be at church. Why? Because He loves you, and that's where you're going to learn and grow in the faith and become more like Christ. I think it breaks His heart when we're not in church because He knows what's best for us. Okay, that's, that's His attitude. My attitude is, why isn't He coming? You know, what is He doing? What happened to Him? You know, but, but so often we get caught up in attending church or doing things on the outside that, that have to do with religion, and we're doing that to gain acceptance. Well, I've got to make these appearances, and I've got to make it look like I'm doing a good thing, and I've got to say the right words, and I've, I've got to play religion, you know? And because God has accepted us, we don't have to play religion, man. We don't have to try to find identity or acceptance in that vehicle, in that mean. We don't have to pursue acceptance through people-pleasing, I would say that probably 50% of, if not a higher percentage of what we do for people is all based on wanting to be accepted by them. I've been struggling with lately, you know, whenever I start watching politics, I turn into the worst possible, I start yelling at the TV, you know, and with the SCOTUS ruling on gay marriage and stuff, which really frustrates me, the thing that's, that's really interesting about that whole ruling and, and, and the direction of this country we must understand, and we must love homosexuals, okay? So it, it's not about, you know, it's not about that. But what, the thing that's fascinating about this whole situation is that homosexuals make up less than a percent in this nation. What's driving this whole thing are secular heterosexuals. Why would someone who believes in, maybe they don't believe in traditional marriage, but they're married to a woman why would they take up this gay marriage banner? Why would they put so much energy into that cause and fight in the courts? Now, I'm telling you right now, without heterosexual support, it's not even an issue. We don't talk about it. For crying out loud, have you been seeing the ads for the ESPY Awards? Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, a.k.a., getting the award for courage? It's secular heterosexual society that supports this thing and keeps this thing rolling and is what's, what is steamrolling. I've talked to gay people. They don't even want this stuff like heterosexuals do. They're just like, whatever happens, happens. 
It's amazing. It's a phenomenon. And I'll tell you why they do it. I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why secular, and it's not just secular. There's a lot of Christians that have taken up this mantra, and that's very disturbing. I'll tell you why they do it. Acceptance. They feel that if they don't take up this cause, they'll look like bigots. They'll look like, you know, whatever it is. They'll look like something that they shouldn't look like. They won't be accepted by the broader populace. They won't be accepted by the gay community, if you will. And they, they just won't have the acceptance. And so why do, peop, why do people become people pleasers? Why do they do things like that and other things and smaller things, maybe on our scale, little things we do things for people? A lot of times we're doing it for the wrong motivation. We're not just serving a brother. We want them to accept us. We, we want them to receive us. They want, we want them to favor us. So much of what we do is motivated by the wrong things. And a lot of it has to do with acceptance. It does. I mean, that's just a fact. I know me, and I know what I do. A lot of times I'm wrestling with that. What's the beauty of God's acceptance? I don't have to be a people pleaser. I don't. I, I don't have to be a people pleaser. I, I don't think it means you go around being a jerk your whole life. Obviously, you know, well, I don't have to be a people pleaser so everyone can just tick off. Well, no, that's not what it means. That's not Christian. I feel that way. I do that at times. But that's not Christian. That's not the heart of Christ. But we don't have to play these games and work angles, and we don't have to do things that aren't glorifying to God. And how much of the stuff that we do that isn't glorifying to Him that's just based on trying to get acceptance from people? It's terrible. We don't have to pursue acceptance through self-beautification. Okay? The guy's like, well, I'm not into that. Yeah, how much do you spend on hair product? I'm guilty, man. I buy the good stuff. The other stuff dries out my hair. It makes me a crispy critter. I know what's up. But sometimes we're into the clothing and we're into the, the hair stuff. And some of the women, you know, they get the Tammy Faye thing going on. They look like tropical fish in a, in a tank, right? You know, it's like, good night, man. You can't put that on thicker. Don't go in the heat. You're going to melt, right? And what are we doing? What are we doing? Are we trying to, you know, are we really just trying to be attractive? I mean, we're married and we're doing this stuff. That makes no sense. I, I'm not saying we turn to slobbery. But why are we doing these things? Why do we put on the killer kicks? Why do we do the hair a certain way? Why do we die? I'm, I'm pretty simple today, right? Why do we go over and above in our appearance, in our beautification? Are we trying to gain the acceptance of people? Some of us are just fishing for compliments all the time. Well, you look great. You're a snazzy dresser. Nobody uses the word snazzy anymore, except for Paul Rogers and Bruce. Why do we do this? Why do we, why do we doll ourselves up? Why do we do all of this? Why do we put on the cologne? I do it because I like cologne. You know, my wife, every time I put it on, she's like, who are you trying to impress? I'm like, me. I don't like to smell not like cologne. I like cologne, you know. But think about it for a moment. So much of what we do gets wrapped up in trying to earn the acceptance of others. And it happens in beautification. It happens in people-pleasing. It happens in, in our religious efforts. We're trying to get from people something that we don't need from them. We don't have to pursue, and this goes right along with people-pleasing, we don't have to pursue acceptance through political correctness. Again, if you speak the truth, and keep in mind Orson Welles, I think it was Orson Welles that said it. No, it was George Orwell that said it. Truth is the new hate speech, right? Truth is bigoted. It's hate speech. It's horrible. You can't say these things. You can't proclaim the Bible. There's a guy right now that's got a $27 million lawsuit against a Bible publisher because of the passages that denounce homosexuality. <laughs> Where does this stuff come? And somebody would be like, I'll take up that cause, you know? But political correctness. We, we, are, we are the most limp-wristed people in every, every American generation that there's been. This is the most limp-wristed, weak, docile, passive, fraidy cat generation of all generations. It's shameful. And it's political correctness. It will be the end of American liberty. People are petrified to say what's right because they're afraid it's going to offend people. They'll lose acceptance. Maybe they'll be judged. Maybe they'll be, you know identified as a bigot or whatever it is but you know because god has accepted us we don't have to play the political correctness game we don't have to be people pleasers in that again it doesn't mean we go out and beat people up with the truth or any of that it just means that we can speak truth and love and let it stand and suffer for doing that but please if you're not accepted by the broader public 
Why would you think, uh, have you not read the book of Acts? Did we not just spend two years doing that? People did not like the Christians. They did not like the church. They hated Jesus. Look at the Gospels. He was killed. He was nailed to one of those things. You're going to suffer for that. Don't change the message. Don't, Don't modify the Gospel. Don't soften the truth. Speak it in truth and love, but don't do any of that to conform to the ways of this world because you want to be accepted by people. Why? Because if you're a believer, you're accepted by God. You don't have to do that. We don't have to pursue acceptance through wealth, spending, possessions. You know, I work with guys and I, and I love them to death and, you know, they don't, they don't know Jesus and at times I, I really doubt that I'm helping them to know Jesus because it's easy to get caught up in, in the shenanigans of the world when you're around worldly people for eight, nine hours a day. Tim, you work at Gallo. Anyone who works out in the secular world, all of you pretty much, me too, you, you know what it's like. It's tough. But... You know, I work with guys, and, and they're constantly, you know, it's like the minute they get a vehicle paid off, they actually own it now. They go down and trade it in and buy another $40,000 one and start the whole cycle over. And when I say, wow, you just paid off your vehicle, that's really awesome. Oh, you didn't hear I traded it in last week. Huh? You now own it and you got rid of it? What were you thinking, right? Why did you do that? And here's what they'll say. Yeah, but look at me. Look at how cool I am. And look at your van, it's a piece of crap. (laughs) Say that stuff to me all the time. You know, right? It is. My van is a complete roach. Sanford and Sons wouldn't have had it on their lot. All right? It's it's not even a roach, it's a cricket. It can't even be a roach, right? It's paid for, I own it. But the reason why these guys buy these vehicles and spend the money on these things and have the possessions is so that they will be accepted by the world, which says, I'm not going to accept you unless you have these things. Unless you own that, you know, and what are trucks now? A Silverado? 50 grand? What? Yeah, like 50 grand plus interest, 100 grand, right? Take out a 30? It's unbelievable, but why do people buy the things, and why do they amass wealth, and why do they have the possessions, and why do they beautify themselves, and why do they do all this? It's all about acceptance. At the end of the day, people want to be accepted by others. They want to be accepted by the world. They want to be accepted by those that are around them. And the spectacular question to ask at this point is, if God, our maker, has accepted us in Jesus Christ... Why would we pursue it anywhere else? Do we not realize that we cannot reach a higher level of acceptance? You know, buying the $50,000 car and trying to gain acceptance through being cool through that, it doesn't tap out your tank, you know, your acceptance tank. Being accepted by your creator is the ultimate level and fullness of acceptance. You can't get higher than that. You can't get deeper than that. You can't get wider than that. You can't add to it. Our acceptance, I like to say, is maxed. It is full. And you've got to understand, friends, this is one of the most liberating truths of the gospel, that you are accepted. It is one of the most liberating truths of the gospel. It will set you free from performance. It will set you free from people-pleasing, which is absolutely miserable. It will set you free from all of the crazy, out-of-line, bad stewardship and spending and Tammy Faye Baker makeup. It will set you free from all of the dumb, dumb things in this world that we think gives us acceptance. It will set you free from all of those things which spoil, rust, dilapidate, fall apart. Think of it right now. If you're trying to gain acceptance through people, it is based on how they feel that day. There might be a day where they got a good night's sleep because they got a beauty rest. They get up. I am so fresh. They come to work. They're treating you like gold. You feel accepted. It's stroking your ego. You feel like you're on top of the world. And then he gets a bad chicken nugget at lunch. His whole attitude changes. He doesn't accept you. You're miserable. You're sad. You know what? God has accepted us. Stop trying to seek it out with the guys you work with. Stop trying to seek it out from your spouse. Stop trying to seek it out from your children. Stop trying to seek it out and find it in wealth and spending, in Cadillac Escalades. You have an Escalade, you got a lot of money, that's great. Just give more. Just, it's, you know, just don't try to find it in other things because all of those means are what I started this little section with. They are lesser means. And anything that you would try to get through any other person than God himself the Trinity, the Godhead, 
It's not going to last. It won't last. It's fleeting. It's designed to spoil and rust and fall away so that at the end of time, the only one that stands is God and his bride. So can we all agree today to stop trying to find it everywhere else? And we all agree, right? And then we leave here and everything's great. Then come Tuesday, we're upset because of what somebody said to us because we feel like they're not accepting us. They don't approve of us. And we kind of, dog, a dog returns to its vomit. You know, we kind of return to our sin. If anything at all, just know, just know that if you are in Christ, you have all the acceptance you will ever need. Don't go further than Christ. Stop with him. And I know it's tough because we have flesh and we long for, you know, people approval and we long for all of that stuff. I get it. But the only one who truly, truly in the deepest, broadest, widest, immutable sense approves of you and has accepted you is God himself. And it's all in Christ. Know that, friends. Know that and believe that. Now, this is one way to understand verse 6 or more particularly 6b. That's based on the King James rendering, right? It has to do with being accepted. And that's a fantastic way to look at it. Let me give you another here. Uh, Let's just look at blessed again. Blessed is harito. And by the way, I love haritos. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That's the sweetest drink on the face of the earth. And it's really good with spicy tacos. Give me an amen, Tim Bywater. Right? They're really good. After you drink it, though, you feel like you could drink an ocean because, yeah, right? You know, they're not good for you. But it's pronounced harito. And it sounds like the little Spanish, Mexican, little drink right? I love them. And they're really cheap. It is harito in Greek, and it means to, and now this is where it gets really amazing, because I think this is the broader meaning of the verse. Harito means to bestow favor on. That's what blessed there means. That's what harito means. It means to bestow favor on. Uh, Verses, or verse 6b should actually read, He has bestowed favor on us in the Beloved. That would be a far more accurate English translation of the original Greek there. Why no one, no English translator pulled that off, I don't know. But that's how it should be rendered. And you know what? Translators or interpreters, translators, whatever you want to call them, they're human beings. They're led by the Holy Spirit, and, you know, and that's true. And the Scripture is the Scripture. The Scripture is Scripture is Scripture. There's no doubt about that. The Scripture isn't wrong. But sometimes we can't find words in our language, in our vocabulary, English that, being, that really express what's going on here. So, He has bestowed favor on us in the Beloved. That's what it means. Now, this is what's spectacular about this. This same Greek verb shows up in Luke's Gospel the first chapter, verse 28. I had it read to you, right? The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, right? Greetings, O favored one, ha-rito. O favored one, ha-rito. The Lord is with you. Now, I like the uh, King James Version of that particular little text better too. It says, hail thou that art highly favored, ha-rito. The Lord is with thee. King James is closer to the reality there. Now, it's spectacular that the Apostle Paul actually used the same word with respect to us, right? Blessed. We are the ones who are blessed in Christ, in the beloved there, right? He used harito there. He used it in the same place uh, in representing the archangel's words to Mary. What did he tell Mary? That she was highly favored. She was highly favored, right? She was chosen from all women. How was she highly favored? She was chosen from all women to carry and bear the Christ child, the Son of God. She had been created for this, that the Son of God should enter her womb and be born of her. Talk about favor. Now, Paul speaks similarly about us. This is amazing. Same Greek word. And I know, I know Paul is doing this deliberately. This isn't by happenstance. It is the same Greek verb. He wants us to think of the favor of Mary here in Ephesians 1.6. Again, he has already told us that we have been predestined unto adoption as sons and daughters. And that's marvelous, right? 
But it is greater than that, my friends. Not only are we made sons and daughters of God, but Christ comes into us, right? He comes into us. As He had physically entered Mary, so spiritually He enters into every one of us who are His children. Like Mary, we too are highly favored to bear Christ. This is amazing, you guys. That's the parallel. She was highly favored, carried the living Son of God in a physical way. We are highly favored and carry the Son of God in a spiritual way in ourselves. Christ is in us, right? That's what he's pointing to. How marvelous is this? Do you think that's a blessing? I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I was like, no, come on, Paul. Yes, Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. This is the parallel between Ephesians 6b and Luke 1.28. It is the parallel right there. We are highly favored in the Beloved, just as Mary was highly favored by God the Father, right? Now listen to this amazing statement from MLJ, Martin Lloyd-Jones. God, in His infinite wisdom and infinite love and grace and mercy, before the foundation of the world, decided that you and I were to be highly favored and that by His grace we should not only be redeemed from the ravages and consequences of sin and be adopted into His family, but that in us His very Son should come to dwell and our bodies should become what? The temple of the Holy Ghost. This is the Apostle's conception of the Christian. And this is how we should habitually think of ourselves as we walk through life in this world. Wow, God did these things for you and I. That he so in eternity past not only chose us unto election to be saved, not only predestined us to adoption through Christ as sons and daughters of him, but that he actually had high, high, I would say the highest favor for us and chose to put Christ in us as he did with Mary in such a similar way. Wow, that is extravagant grace. That is love beyond all measure. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, as I, was, as, as I was writing this and really considering and pondering it, I just started to weep profusely. Because I don't think that I've ever understood God's love in this way. Or maybe we might say that I've never experienced love like this. Now, I know that the cross speaks of God's love for me. And, and, and believe me, I cherish that. Most of the time when I'm preaching, if I talk about God's love, I point to the cross because I think that's probably one of the single greatest expressions of His love for ding-dongs like us in, in all of creation, in all of history. There's no doubt about it, right? But when we read and study the Bible, more particularly when we look at these texts, when we look at the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, we discover that His love is broader and wider than even what the cross represents. I wouldn't say it's deeper than the cross because I think what took place at Calvary is beyond our comprehension to the fullest extent. But I would say that His love has been made manifest or that it is broader and wider than we typically think of it. Because when we look at texts like this, it shows that His love is broader and wider than our regular conception or, or uh, perception of it, I should say. It is profoundly deep. It is beyond. Man. Now, there is one more thing that I'd like to cover in, and it'll take a little bit of time to do this, so don't think that we're going to end in five minutes. Some of you would like that, you know. You're, we're used to the 35, 40-minute sermon, right? Well, I'm sorry, that's not how we roll. Um, it's hard to do that. Uh, there's one more thing that I'd like to cover here, and that's the word beloved. I want to know what that means. I wanted to know what that means. I think I know what it means. I think it means Christ, obviously, but 
It's, it's more than that. I wanted to know what that meant, to be blessed in the beloved, to be highly favored in the beloved. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how Paul kept repeating, how he repeated over and over the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, or 1 through, yeah, 1 through 5, okay? Let's just jog through these real quick. He literally mentioned the Lord Jesus like six times, right, in four verses. That's pretty impressive. You'd think that what he's trying to say through that is that we should have Christ on our tongue all the time. We should be talking about Jesus, right? But here's what he did. Two times in verse 1, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. One time in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two times in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. There it is again. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what we're studying, the spiritual blessing. One time in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, right? I want you to also notice about all of those examples, the variations he used, right? He said Christ Jesus. He said the Lord Jesus Christ. He said Jesus Christ. He said Christ, right? So he's talking about the Lord the whole time, but he uses Christ and Jesus. He uses four different combinations or variations, we should say. But in verse 6b, we see that he used beloved. He breaks a pattern. He could have said that he has blessed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have said that he has blessed us in Jesus Christ. He could have said he's blessed us in Christ. But he deliberately chose not to. He said, blessed us in the beloved. Again, this is another perfect reason why when we study Scripture, we should slow down. And take a look at the words, because there are things, there are changes, there are things like this that happen, and when you fly through stuff, you miss this stuff. So he broke a pattern, right? Why did he change it up? Was there a reason behind this? Of course. Again, he is, was led by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Ghost as he wrote this. The Holy Ghost is intentional. He does things deliberately. He inspires Paul to write this. So it is with intention that he does this. We've already discovered the parallel between this text and Luke one twenty eight. right? Again, that Mary was highly favored and carried Christ in a physical way and that we are highly favored and carry Christ in a spiritual way. But Paul is about to show us how being in Christ or in the beloved is an additional example of God's high favor towards us. That's what he's going to show us here. Beloved, in the New Testament is a title for Christ that is always, always, always associated with the Father's affectionate love and acceptance. Beloved is agapeo in Greek. We think of agape, but this is not agape. This is different. This is agapeo. It's a little different. And that's it in the Greek. And it means to have love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard. It means to regard with affection and loving concern. That is agapeo defined. And that's what we see here. Okay? Also, over in Matthew three sixteen to 17, we read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Agapeo, son, with whom I am well pleased. When people were standing along the river Jordan trying to figure out who Jesus is right during this time, a voice came down from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, this is the son, this is the one whom I love, this is the one whom I am well pleased with. That's the rendering, that's the meaning. Over in Luke 9, 28 to 35, we read, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face, speaking of Jesus, was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, that's amazing, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Uh, When he was about to 
uh, what he was about to accomplish, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, right? And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, like it's like the, the smoke or the fog came over them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When Peter was rambling and babbling and trying to figure out what to do, right, rumbling through the cloud, this powerful voice said, this is my beloved son, the one whom I agapeo, the one whom I love. Stop rambling, Peter. Listen to him. In Luke 29 through 15, Jesus told a parable, and he began, this is him speaking, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent uh, a servant to the tenants so that they would uh, give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet another, a third, that, that one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said this, what shall I do? I will send my agapeo, my beloved son, Perhaps they will respect him, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus was referring to Israel. God had sent her prophets, right? But they were rejected and thrown out and cast out, some killed. God sent his beloved, right, his son, the one whom he agapeo loves, and the people not only rejected him, but they also killed him, right? Each of these passages shows us that the beloved, the Son of God, is the one whom the Father loves. He is agapeo, one who is approved, one who is accepted, one whom is cherished, one who is loved. Now let's begin to tie it to us. We are adopted Sons and daughters of God through the Lord Jesus, but it is more than that. God favored us and put Christ in us, similar to Mary, but it's more than that. Here's the crescendo. God has favored us and put us into the one whom he loves, the beloved. That is what Paul meant here. There is no higher blessing than to be put into the one whom the Father, agapeo, loves. It is the pinnacle of God's blessings. The absolute pinnacle of God's blessings. It means that we are loved. Listen. It means that we are loved as Christ is loved. It means that the Father loves us in the same way that he loves the son. Now that sounds like a little bit of science fiction. It sounds like a stretch of the imagination, doesn't it? It's not. And I, I, I've been saying to myself, how could God possibly love me as much as he loves his son? He can't. He does. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, agapeo, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What is Paul doing? He's compelling them by the very deepest, broadest, widest sense of God's love to live holy lives. Agapeo here. Ephesians 5.1, we'll get to it in a while. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved, as agapeo. I love you as I love my son. I favor you as I favor him as dear beloved children. That's what he's saying. Same meaning, same word, same interpretation. It's all there. 
2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, agapeo, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Each, and there's so many more, each of these verses calls God's, you know, God's children believers. It calls believers beloved, agapeo. Same, same, same word being used there as it is in our text. What does it mean? It means that the Father loves His adopted sons and daughters the same way He loves His only begotten beloved, so highly favored son. Let that sink in. Don't, don't fly over this. Don't skim this. Let that reality, let that truth, let that sink in. That you are loved as he loves the beloved. You are the beloved. <laughs> This truth about God's love, it will change you. It will reshape your life. It really will. We also not only pursue acceptance from all these lesser means, but we pursue love. Or what we think is love. The hashtag for the SCOTUS rendering is love wins. That love will never win. That's not love. That's not love. How many countless people are trying to find love or what they perceive or think is love through that lifestyle or any other or even support in that? That's lust. I was a bit of a carouser when I was younger. I was, as the old song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. Never find it. Love is elusive. The worldly sense of it. If we are loved this way, if we are accepted this way, why would we pursue those things by lesser means? Why would we seek to find them through some other means or vehicle? You are loved in the deepest possible way. You are accepted in the deepest possible way. This is the gospel, friends. This is why it's good news. I'll close with one more statement from MLJ. The truth about the Christian the truth about the one who is in Christ is that because he is in Christ and is adopted as a son in the beloved, God the Father loves him as he loved his own son. That is, that is even, he says, that is even beyond sonship. But it means an intimacy of communion with God that we share with the son himself. It is not only a question of rank or of position. It is not merely that we have been adopted legally. The Father now loves us as He loved the Son Himself. And He says, it is staggering and stupendous. He goes on, are you convinced? Are you satisfied? Do you realize that that is the ultimate height of salvation. It is because everything we have is in the beloved that we ourselves become the beloved of God. God loves the Christian as he loves his son. We share that love, nothing less. And he goes on, have you been tempted to think that God is not fair to you, that God is dealing rather harshly and unkindly to you? Never harbor such a thought again. Never. Whether you understand what is happening to you or not, this is the truth 
concerning you in Christ. And because He is the beloved, you are also the beloved of God. End quote. If you are a Christian, you are a saint, you are faithful, you will be by the Spirit's power, and you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You were chosen. You were adopted by God through Christ. You were and are accepted. You were and are highly favored. Christ is in you. You are in the beloved, and you are the beloved. That is Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Hallelujah. That's what it means. Isn't it marvelous? How? Okay, here we go. This is it. We've heard this. This is who we are positionally. This is what Christ has for us. It's what he's done for us. It's what we have in Christ. The Father has bestowed all of this on us, the favor, the love, the acceptance, all of that, all of that, right? How spectacular, how wonderful. I hope you're moved. How should we live in light of this amazing reality? These aren't just doctrines that we study. This is our reality. This is who we are. It is ours. Lay a hold of these things. Take charge. Grab the horns. It's yours, beloved. It's who you are. It's what he has. How should we respond? How do we live in light of this reality? 6A, to the praise of his glorious grace. Done. Maybe we can be like Mary who began her amazing song after she realized what God had done for her. What did she say? My soul doth magnify thee. Doth. Does. My soul does magnify thee. What would our understanding of that be? To the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. Hallelujah. I hope you're blessed.